Thanks to those who organised this, Peter in particular, and the Modern Record Centre and History Policy as well. I'm very honoured and privileged to be here. Um, <coughs> the title of the book, Comrades in Conflict, just reflects my liking for alliteration. Um, the idea for the book really actually was a journal article, um, and originally I was going to do a 10 or 11,000 journal article on the problems which the Labour government encountered over in place of strife, and as I got more involved in it and came across more and more sources, the whole thing just expanded. I came across Castle's own personal papers at the Bodleian, um, but, uh, Harold Wilson's papers of course, James Callaghan's, obviously the papers here, the trade union archives and meetings, and so what started out as being a kind of 10 or 11,000 word journal article ended up as a 93,000 word monograph. Uh, it just grew and grew and grew. Um, I perhaps just sort of perhaps forewarn maybe that I'm approaching this really from more from a political science point of view rather than an industrial relations point of view, which I might upset some people, I don't know, but then we'll see. Um, and what I'm concerned about to, in this book is to look at how, as it were, this caused divisions both within the Labour cabinet and personality clashes. Obviously, Barbara Castle was a major focus of that for both sort of uh, class and sexist reasons, I think. Um, clashes within the cabinet and the backbench Labour Party, and also, of course, obviously, clashes between the Labour government and the trade unions. So there are a whole series of kind of institutional and personal conflicts which are engendered by this whole issue. In terms of the background or the concepts in place of strife we referred to before, I'm just going to do this very briefly. I'm not going to sort of read word for word by PowerPoint. That's what university managers do. They call you an away day and then basically read the PowerPoint <laughs> word for word. I think just send me the bloody attached to my email and let me go and do some proper work. But anyway, um, the context I think is important because it's during the early 1960s that I think Britain's political elites become aware of the idea of relative economic decline. And to use the words of Robert Taylor, the trade unions become the scapegoats of that economic decline. So attention turns, therefore, in the early 60s towards the trade unions and their alleged role in Britain's faltering economy. But there are also changes in the economy as well, which have become apparent by the 1960s, which exacerbate the problems, allegedly, I'll put in problems in inverted commas, of the trade unions. So, for example, Britain's economy is becoming more interdependent by the early 60s. There are economies of scale as firms grow larger through rationalisations, mergers and amalgamations. And the problem with that is, from a kind of industrial relations point of view, is that strikes in one industry or even in one factory have more repercussions and implications for workers in other industries, maybe, or other sectors of the economy. Because as firms become interdependent and companies become larger, as the Girlings dispute showed, if 22 workers go on strike, thousands of workers could be laid off, and that became a major source of concern. We also saw as well in the 60s, as firms became larger and there were mergers and amalgamations, there were more tendencies towards demarcation disputes. So workers saying, that's not your job to do that, it's our members' job to do that. If you do that job, we're going to go on strike. So demarcation disputes therefore became more problematic. The mergers also as well, with the rise of oligopolies and larger industries and larger companies, also created another major problem in the sense that management became more remote, both physically, organisationally and geographically, from the workers on the shop floor. So a gulf emerged, therefore, whereby many workers felt a lack of identity with the firm they worked for. Management seemed more and more remote. 
And you had, therefore, in that situation, a kind of power vacuum because at the same time the trade union leadership also became more remote, or at least it seemed to be more remote, to the workers on the shop floor. Workers in Coventry or Cardiff, for example, would see their union leaders hobnobbing with kind of politicians down in London and wonder, who do they actually represent? Are they selling us out? Have they become part of the establishment? Who's fighting for us on the shop floor here in Coventry or Cardiff? And it's in that situation, therefore, you saw this power vacuum being filled by local-level shop stewards who became identified by politicians as a major source of problems in terms of trade union strikes. One other issue also I should point out as well was that the early 60s saw this move towards incomes policies, whereby governments assumed, this is Conservative and Labour governments, assumed that incomes policies were the way to curb inflation. But again, what that did in practice was it incorporated union leaders more and more into national level negotiations with governments and employers, usually to hold down wage increases. So again, therefore, on the shop floor, there was a growing concern that union leaders were actually colluding with politicians and employers, not to fight for better wages, but actually hold down wages in accordance with government incomes policies. And that reinforced the idea, therefore, that shop stewards were actually reflecting local level workers much more effectively than their national union leaders in London who seem to be becoming part of the establishment. So this kind of context, therefore, organisationally and economically, gives rise to concern politically about the role of shop stewards, who arguably or allegedly are fermenting militant action and particular unofficial strikes. Because in the early 60s, the Department of Employment, as it was, began to record the type of strikes which were occurring in the British economy, and it was found that about 95% of strikes were unofficial. So the issue, therefore, of union authority became a key issue politically. And it struck me straight away, therefore, looking at this, that unions in some respect, um, from a government's point of view, as it were, couldn't win. Because on the one hand, they're told that, that unions are too powerful and too strong, and therefore the power needs to be curbed. On the other hand, the argument was actually union leaders weren't powerful enough to curb their rank and file members. So that debate, therefore, about whether unions were too powerful or too weak and as it were, rumbles on throughout all these debates and also through the Conservative Party policies in the 70s. So that's also part of the context as well. Um, very briefly, the Royal Commission and why it's set up. It's ironic that Harold Wilson once said that Royal Commissions take minutes and waste years. And then basically it would become a great fan of Royal Commissions. Um, so he set up a Royal Commission therefore in 1965 to look into uh, trade unions and employers associations. It's quite clear, however, that the main focus is the trade unions. They, again, are seen as the problem, not the employers' organisations. And Wilson suspect or hoped that the Royal Commission, which obviously was chaired by Lord Donovan, hence its common name, the Donovan Commission, would publish a fairly radical set of proposals which would alarm the trade unions, whereupon Wilson could come forward with a more modest set of proposals and calm the unions down because Wilson could therefore appear, as it were, as Mr. Moderate, as Mr. Pragmatist. The problem Wilson encountered, along with Barbara Castle, is that actually the Donovan Commission, when it published its report in 1968, after three years of negotiations and uh, um, discussions and deliberations, actually recommended, more or less, an endorsement of the existing voluntary uh, system. 
it came out against the idea of legislation or a legal framework for industrial relations. It basically endorsed the trade union perspective on voluntarism and to a large degree non-state intervention in industrial relations. That the need was to strengthen voluntarism, not abandon it. And in many respects, this was a disappointment to Wilson because it had taken away his trump card of being able to say to the unions, look, Donovan is going too far, he's proposing radical reforms of legislation, don't worry, we won't do that, we'll find a more cautious middle way to, as it were, modernise industrial relations. So when the Donovan report therefore endorses <coughs> voluntarism, Wilson and Barbara Castle feel compelled to offer something more radical. And again, therefore, this became problematic because the unions themselves kept referring back to the Donham Report of 1968 to justify voluntarism and argue against what Wilson and Castle came to propose in In Place of Strife. So right from the outset, therefore, this was this, this conflict. Um, the key proposals in In Place of Strife, and incidentally, it's just again just worth noting, perhaps in passing, that the name In Place of Strife was not actually adopted um, until about two days before publication of the white paper. For most of that time, it's referred to by various names, and they couldn't even agree, the politicians and the civil service in the Department of Employment and Productivity, they couldn't even agree on what they should call this white paper. They were going to call it originally People at Work. Until it was pointed out there was a Ladybird series of books on occupations <laughs> called People at Work, which rather undermined the gravitas of the situation. Uh, so about two days before publication, therefore, when they're going to press, they decided upon the name of In Place of Strife. And of course, as you're probably aware, Barbara Castle adopted this name because she thought it paid homage to the uh, uh, doyen of the left, for example, uh, Nuremberg Bevan and his In Place of Fear in 1952. And Castle hoped, therefore, that this would endear herself and this white paper to the left by, as it were, naming in a kind of way which is similar to the key work of a Nuremberg Bevan. Of course, actually, that antagonised the left immensely. They said, how dare you, as it were, invoke the kind of mem memory of a Nuremberg Bevan and his In Place of Fear, his document for socialism, by calling your white paper In Place of Strife. Um, so right away, therefore, again, there's a kind of miscalculation, maybe, in terms of how the left would respond to this sort of pr proposal. In Place of Strive contained about 25 policy proposals, and about 22 of those were meant to be positive for the trade unions. You know, union recognition, the right of union membership, employers compelled to recognise unions for bargaining purposes, funds <coughs> for training union members and officials, uh, workers on boards of companies, which apparently Navy and Tree is amazing in favour of, apparently. Um, but the three crucial problems in place of strife was obviously what was became known as the penal clauses. There were three punitive, as they were seen by the unions, measures in place of strife, which from the union's point of view obviated and negated the other 22 more positive constructive measures. And they were, of course, the Secretary of State uh, for Employment, i.e. Barbara Castle, would be allowed to impose a 28-day conciliation pause prior to a strike if procedures had not been followed because the government was concerned at what they called unconstitutional strikes, whereby unions went on strike before exhausting disputes procedures in their workplace. The idea of what were called in those days wildcat strikes, instant walkouts. 
and is arguing this is creating chaos and anarchy in industrial relations. So the idea of a conciliation pause, therefore, is the Secretary of State, in this case Barbara Castle, could say to a union, no, you can't go on strike right now until you've exhausted existing disputes procedures uh, over 28 days, and this actually might, as it would be extended for a further 28 days also. So this is, as it were, was giving statutory powers to the Secretary of State. Secondly, the Secretary of State, i.e. Barbara Castle, could order a ballot um, before a strike if it was deemed to be a strike which was serious enough to cause damage to the economy. So again, therefore, a statutory power is being appropriated by the Secretary of State. The unions are opposed to that, obviously, is a principle, because it would contravene the idea of voluntarism, which I'll come on to in just a second. But the unions also immediately recognise that if a Secretary of State had these statutory powers to intervene prior to strike action, it'd be bad enough for a Labour government to do this, under Barbara Castle maybe, but what if it were the same powers then as it were transferred to the next Conservative government, who would probably intervene even more? So it wasn't just, therefore, as it were, they objected to Barbara Castle acquiring these powers of statutory intervention to prevent strikes occurring. The concern from the union's point of view was that once these were on the statute book, they might be used more rigorously and more ruthlessly by the next Conservative government. So they had to resist these at all costs. The other thing as well, which is a major bone of contention, which made in place a strike so controversial from the union's point of view, was the idea of fines for trade union members who ignored instructions by the Secretary of State, i.e. Castle, for return to work. Again, the unions argue this is going to criminalise industrial relations. Workers being fined for going on strike. Employers were fined for treating their workers badly or unfair dismissal, for example. So why were union members, therefore, being faced with the possibility of fines? And the other issue as well, perhaps even more importantly, the union said, what if a worker doesn't pay the fine? What if the worker can't afford that fine? Surely the ultimate sanction for non-payment of a fine is imprisonment. So the union said, here we have a Labour government publishing a white paper, i.e. a prelude to legislation, which might ultimately result in trade union members being sent to prison. This was totally, totally unacceptable to the unions. Castle believed that she was being actually very practicable, very sensible and actually very constructive. She argued this is basically a balanced approach to trade union rights and responsibilities. She said the White Paper had 22 proposals to give unions statutory rights, but three proposals which imposed responsibilities on them. And she also argued as well the unions had a responsibility to the wider community. And therefore, she said, I'm trying to get a balanced approach here. Um, there is also, as well, Castle argued that what she was pursuing was, dare I use the phrase, it's discredited now, the idea of a third way. Um, because she said, on the one hand, she said Donovan didn't go far enough. On the other hand, she said the Conservative Party in 1968 has published his own proposals for industrial relations reform, which are much more draconian, a document called Fair Deal at Work. And Castle argued, I'm trying to steer a third way here. And she said to the unions, we can't accept what Donovan argued, because that's basically the status quo, more or less. You don't need Conservative Party to come along, do you, and impose their much more draconian legal reforms of industrial relations. Therefore, my approach is the balanced third way. It's the moderate constructive approach. Castle was also confident that she could persuade the unions over time that it were that they would benefit from these measures and that it were um, the three punitive measures 
broadly speaking, would be outweighed by the more 22 positive measures. So she was confident, therefore, that many trade union members, once they understood her proposals, would welcome them. And she had a great belief in her powers of persuasion and argument, therefore. Um, and she also pointed out as well that the unions insisting on voluntarism was actually slightly hypocritical. She said the unions already benefit from state intervention. Contracts, statutory contracts, for example, redundancy entitlement, training at work, a whole range of measures, he said, have been enacted over the decades to benefit the trade unions. They already benefit, as do working people generally, from state intervention to guarantee statutory rights in the workplace. So the idea, therefore, she said, of a few more being enshrined in, in place of strife is not simply, in a, is, she said, it's not an abandonment of voluntarism. It's actually extending, as it were, industrial intervention, which already benefits the trade unions. So she argued, therefore, what she was proposing, she did not see as being particularly draconian or a break with tradition. And also the other point as well that she saw in place of strife as a socialist policy. Because the argument was, how can we, as it were, as a Labour government, plan the economy if industrial relations is subject to kind of chaos and disorder, for example, and lack of planning and short-termism. So as far as she was concerned, therefore, in place of strife and the idea of uh, planning industrial relations in a kind of framework of law was merely, as it were, part of a broader objective of a Labour government trying to plan industry and the economy on socialist grounds. Uh, and the other point as well was it is argued by some that if you make industrial relations more orderly uh, and you clamp down upon unofficial or unconstitutional strikes, you'll make income as policies more effective. Uh, and again, on that point, there was a lack of clarity amongst some of those involved in in-place of strife, particularly some of the civil servants involved, about whether in-place of strife and the proposals enshrined in that document were supposed to make income as policies more effective or actually obviate the need for income as policies altogether. Because some argued if we have more orderly collective bargaining and we reduce strikes, then we don't need income as policies because we can restore orderly collective bargaining. So right from the outset, therefore, there is a kind of there is an ambiguity about the role of income as policy in terms of in place of strife. Would it make income as policies more effective or actually obviate the need for them altogether? And no one was quite clear on that point. There's an ambiguity. The cabinet's initial response is divided. Um, one point actually I should perhaps mention here again, just back to that previous point actually, is I've got a quote here from John Burr. Um, what was very interesting actually, and I think it's been overlooked, was that in mid-November 1968, Barbara Castle had organised... Um, or in academic circles would be called a, a, not just an away day, two away days basically, the Sunningdale sort of civil service training college at Sunningdale in Berkshire and a group of her civil servants and some of her junior ministers had a weekend retreat to as it were look at industrial relations reform um, and it was quite clear that many of the proposals which became crystallised and enshrined in, in place of strife were really, as it were, discussed and thrashed out of that mid-November Sunningdale agreement in mid-November 1968 because um, her closest civil servant at the time involved in, in these proposals, John Burr, um, put forward a paper for discussion at this conference where he said, I quote, the doctrine of non-intervention in industrial relations never entirely corresponded with reality and is now completely out of date. 
The real question is not whether there should be legislation on industrial relations, but what sort of legislation there should be. And Castle, broadly speaking, concurred with that analysis of her sort of senior civil servant, uh, John Burr. But so the cabinet, therefore, when they put forward this proposal, they receive these proposals on the 3rd of January 69. They're concerned about two things, or some ministers are. Some are concerned about the pure content. And here, both James Callaghan and also um, Richard Crossman are concerned about the so-called penal clauses. There's also concern as well about the timing of the proposed legislation. Because again, Castle said, I'm publishing this white paper in January 1969, but I don't propose to be in legislation until November 1969 to allow for a 10 or 11 month consultation period to win the unions over. Again, this is Castle's idea that actually could persuade people if she has sufficient time. So, and again, this is a rather bizarre way of doing things also, because usually in politics, a government publishes a green paper, a consultation document, to elicit responses before it produces a white paper with its firm legislative pro proposals. What Castle did was publish a white paper as the basis of consultation. So this itself is actually unorthodox politically, but nonetheless, Castle assumed if I publish the paper in January with a plan for legislation the following November, then we've got 11 months to win the unions and the left over. The left, the left of the Labour Party, she knew would oppose this. However, that view is uh, opposed by Roy Jenkins, the Chancellor Exchequer, because Jenkins argued, and I think with hindsight on this particular point, he was right, not often I agree with Roy Jenkins, but this is, this is the first time for everything. Jenkins argued, actually, no, he said, the longer you leave it, the more there'll be mobilisation against your proposals. He says the unions and the Labour Party activists <coughs> at conference in September will have 10 or 11 or 9 or 10 months to mobilise against in place of strife. And you'll find it harder to bring in legislation the longer you leave it. So Roy Jenkins argued, if you're going to do this, Barbara, do it now. Get it onto the books now before it can mobilise against you. So there are two issues there for the content itself and the penal clauses, which James Callan in particular is bitterly opposed to, um, for reasons I come on to, and also the timing, how sort of soon before you bring in legislation. Other ministers like Anthony Crosland and Judith Hart are ambivalent. They're uneasy about this. They can see the need for some kind of legislation, but they're not quite sure about the content or the timing. So the cabinet in a way is split three ways. There is firm support from people like obviously Castle herself, Harold Wilson, fully backs her. Um, the Foreign Secretary, Michael Stewart, is also what you might call an industrial relations hawk. Um, there's those who are ambivalent, like Crosland and Judith Hart, and there are firm opponents to in place of strife from the outset. Richard Crossman um, is, is certainly proposes, James Callahan, and also Richard Marsh. And one thing I should think we should point out here is that Callahan and Richard Marsh are both what you might call kind of working class trade unionists who resent what they see as middle-class academics, Carson and Wilson, interfering in things they know nothing about. And this becomes a recurring theme, this idea of a kind of inverted class snobbery. But Richard Marsh and James Callaghan are both bitterly opposed from the outset, both on the content of the white paper and the penal clause in particular. Uh, and so they, as it were, um, from the outset, are opposing this. But say Castle thinks she can win them over. There are, in the Labour Party, incidentally, of course, as you might imagine, I'm missing in there. No. Um, so who's TV? Who's, is that Tony Benn? Where's, where's that? TV. 
Tony. Yeah, Tony. Yeah, Tony Benn. Now that's the word. That's worth. That's the point to bear in mind actually, because Tony Benn at this time is not the left winger as it were. They became known as. You know, we know from this sort of 80s, for example, you know, Tony Benn, as it were, was basically, I mean, I think probably, you know, kind of the, the Jeremy Corbyn of the 1980s, as far as the Daily Express is concerned, the Daily Mail, Tony Benn was a kind of sort of the wild leftist, for example. Um, but in sort of the late 60s, Benn was basically a technocrat. And he argued, for example, that how can Labour campaign for a more democratic society if we don't, as it were, accept democracy in the Labour Party's own <coughs> institutions, including the trade unions? Um, and Benn also, as well as Ministry of, Te uh, Minister of Technology, and was also very aware, therefore, as a minister, about the disruption, as it were, caused by wildcat strikes. So Ben, in the late 60s, is not the left-winger he became known as from the late 70s onwards. He is basically a kind of non-ideological technocrat. So he sees a merit in this, basically, on the grounds of democratisation. And as Minister of Technology, he recognised it were that, from his point of view, politically, the danger of wildcat strikes and industrial unrest. So Tony Benn, therefore, supports Castle at this time. So he changed his views later on. But in the, this time, Benn is not the left-winger he became known as later on. Um, in the Labour Party, you sort of saw massive opposition to this. Um, but again, on that point about Callaghan, I should just perhaps point out as well that Callaghan had a background um, as a trade union member. Um, he had been, I think, a deputy leader along with Douglas Hewton, who at the time was chair of the Labour Party, of Parliamentary Labour Party, of the Inland Revenue Staff Association. And <coughs> Callan argues, it were, that he'd always believed in the idea of strong trade unions and was opposed to intervention in the trade unions themselves by governments. He was a voluntarist. And in an interview in 1999, he says, I was brought up with a strong belief of voluntarism and to keep away from the law as far as you can. This is probably a mistake I made, but the Osborne judgment and the Taft Val judgment were the things that made us all suspicious of any in, in, in intervention by the law. It was that which prompted me to oppose what was going on. I believe Donham was right, and the trade unions ought to reform themselves, and the law shouldn't play any part, part in it. The other reason I don't regret it is that I believed at the time that the, you refer to the proposals here, would have wrecked the <coughs> Labour movement. So Callan, therefore, basically, as it were, a strong believer in voluntarism. He's got a background in trade unionism, and therefore, as, he, as far as he is concerned, he sees himself as being on the side of the workers, not as it were his own government, as he sees it, attacking workers. Um, on the other hand, of course, I said before about the personality clashes, Barbara Castle, in her diaries, I quote, uh, uh, says, I quote, um, on diary entry of the 4th of December 1968, Callaghan is the most disloyal and damaging member of the whole government. And then five months later, when the in-place of strife arguments are getting really intense, she says, uh, to 8th of May 69, she describes Callaghan as, I quote, the snake lurking in the grass. I mean... <laughs> You think Theresa May's cabinets are divided, basically. <laughs> this is nothing new. Um, so in that context, therefore, you sort of see divisions in the cabinet emerging. The Labour left, as you expect, um, is totally opposed to this. The left sees this basically, as it were, in place of strife as an attack on the working class by a, a Labour government, um, which they just think is just unacceptable. Um, they also sort of see, for example, uh, that the unit, again, the workers are being blamed for the crisis of capitalism, not the employers or not the city, for example. So again, the left is bitterly opposed to these ideas, of, you know, restrictions on unions, particularly being opposed by a Labour government. And they just find this absolutely unacceptable. Um, and so you have, therefore, the kind of Tribune group in particular, 
um, being very, very hostile towards this. There was a publication, there was an, an additional Tribune, for example, where Michael Foote um, described the whole episode as, uh, the, the, I quote, the maddest scene in modern history. And he says, I quote, Harold Wilson and the Labour cabinet are heading for the rocks, um, having decided to declare war on the trade unions. Um, and Eric Heffer, a, a, a meeting in April of 69 with the Tribune Group, said that basically, um, I quote again, the present Prime Minister, Harry Rawson, must go, even though there's no clear alternative leader. So the Tribune Group, therefore, as it would become the voice of the hard left in the Labour Party at that time, relatively speaking, in opposing this. They see it as an attack on the working class, an attack on the trade unions, uh, and the unions being blamed for the problems of capitalism. Labour also has about 127 trade union-sponsored MPs who also understandably are opposed to the idea in place of strife. They feel their loyalty in some respects is to the unions who sponsor them <coughs> rather than perhaps to the government of the day. Um, again, they said that they support the idea of consultation because they believe they could persuade Castle to drop the penal clauses. So in that context, therefore, the union said we're in favour of the positive proposals more workers' rights, for example, workers and boards of companies, union recognition, etc., etc., but we're opposed to the penal clauses. And uh, an indication, therefore, how much opposition there was, was a key vote in the House of Commons on the 3rd of March, when basically 95 Labour MPs withhold their support from endorsing in place of strife. Um, so it's quite clear to Callan and uh, Castle and Wilson, therefore, that opposition the Labour Party and the trade unions is mounting. What's also worth noting again, however, is uh, with the trade union sponsored MPs opposing in place of strife, along with people like James Callaghan, th this transcended the usual left-right divisions. Yes, the Labour left, particularly the Tribune group, were totally opposed to the penal clauses. But this was also being opposed by, if you like, non-ideologically non defined or even right-wing Labour MPs. So this initiative, therefore, in some respects, made unusual allies of people in the Labour Party who are normally on opposite sides of the sort of fence in terms of sort of various debates and issues. So it kind of, in a way, unwittingly united much of the party against, against Castle and Wilson. The unions, of course, as I said before, are totally committed to voluntarism. The unions are suspicious of legal intervention. They believe that unions should be able to reform themselves without being told what to do by the state. They're also in favour of the idea of free collective bargaining, free meaning free from state intervention. So the unions, therefore, as a matter of principle, believe in voluntarism. And again, they find it totally unacceptable that the Labour government, their so-called allies, are actually planning to place legal curbs on them. Um, what I also argue as well, however, is that the proposals reflect uh, Wilson's and Castle's lack of understanding, the unions would argue, about union affairs. Because the TUC in particular, as argued, had limited authority over affiliated members. The idea, as it were, that the TUC could be ordered by a government to do certain things to control its members didn't reflect how unions operated. And in that context, therefore, the TUC argued time and time again and tried to explain to Wilson and Castle, we don't actually have that much power over our affiliated members. We're a federal organisation. Our authority is actually limited. So what you're asking us to do, therefore, by imposing order on affiliated members is actually not feasible. 
And again, this is where the criticism of Wilson and Castle came in from many union members or union leaders <coughs> um, that basically, they, and, and Jack Jones actually uses this phrase in his book Union Man, that um, Wilson and Castle were middle-class academics. They'd you know, been to grammar school, they'd been to Oxford, and they'd gone straight into politics, more or less. They had never got as well their hands dirty, they'd never worked in trade unions, they'd never worked in factories. And so the idea, therefore, was these proposals being put forward by, in Jack Jones's phrase, middle-class academics. People like Jack Jones and Hugh Scanlon argue, uh, Scanlon argued that Wilson and Castle didn't know what they're dealing with. They didn't know what they're talking about. They're misguided. So that is also part of the problem, therefore. Um, so you say you've got Callaghan, therefore, as Home Secretary who's totally opposed, who cites his own union background, as it was opposing this. Douglas Hewton, the chair of the Parliamentary Labour Party, who was say, basically, it were being kind of um, Callaghan's superior, as it was chair at the time or leader of the Inland Revenue Staff Association. So Callaghan, therefore, and Doug Hewton are very, very close. Hugh Scanlon and Jack Jones are two left-wing union leaders who are totally opposed to his measures. And again, they're very critical of Wilson and Castle. Don't they think they don't understand what they're doing. Um, and what it means is, therefore, as you can imagine, that Barbara Castle and Harry Wilson become increasingly impatient with the growing opposition and the apparent slow progress towards getting an agreement. And what happens, therefore, which really exacerbates things, is April 1969. Because in April 69, Roy Jenkins announced in his budget speech that year the plans for a short industrial relations bill. So all of a sudden, therefore, the union's been told there'll be no legislation until November. In April, they're being told, actually, we can't wait any longer. We're going to bring in a bill with five clauses, including two penal clauses. So basically, rather than do a bill with 25 clauses, 22 favourable to the trade unions and three opposed by the unions, there'll be a short bill of five clauses, three favourable to the trade unions and two opposed to the by the unions. This, for the unions' point of view, is a complete betrayal of everything they've been led as it were believe. Basically, they felt they are being bounced, and so did many of the, much of the lower parties as well. The cabinet also felt it was being uh, bounced. There is also concern as well, why is this proposed legislation, this short industrial relations bill, being announced by the Chancellor Exchequer? rather than the Secretary of State herself, Barbara Castle. So that is also a source of concern. Um, so what you have from this time onwards, therefore, is a series of increasingly frantic meetings between Harold Wilson, Barbara Castle, and the TUC's General Counsel, between Castle, Wilson, and the TUC's General Finance Purposes Committee, sometimes meetings between just Castle and Wilson, Hugh Scanlon, and um, Jack Jones, and also, as well, much to Castle's own kind of sort of uh, contempt, late-night cosy chats, apparently, so on the sort of flat above Downing Street between Harold Wilson and Vic Feather, also, as it were, uh, soon-to-be TUC General Secretary, um, basically over late-night brandy. Um, so this kind of series of meetings, therefore, literally dozens of them, between April and June, as Castle and Wilson, and sometimes Wilson on his own, increasingly frantically try and find some kind of solution um, there was even a, uh, a meeting at Chequers, the Promises Country Residence, based on the 1st of June 69, when Barbara Castle actually uh, flew back from a holiday in Italy to attend this meeting. Um, so it's, it's getting quite sort of uh, panic-stricken, basically. Wilson also is becoming 
I suppose, himself ambiguous in his stance because he starts to make threats about what will happen if in place of strife and the legislation in place of strife isn't passed. He says the government will collapse. He says, I'll call a general election. He says, if you don't agree to in place of strife and enacted the legislation, I'll resign. And of course, some said, is that a promise? So again, they called his bluff. And it sort of showed many arguments, it were, just how, as it were, un kind of unreliable Wilson was becoming. So he started to issue threats, therefore, to get this kind of on the statute book. Um, and then by mid-June, we reached it, well, the kind of climax of this whole situation. I mean, obviously, as it were, I was sort of basically sort of skipped sort of basically through 93,000 words in about sort of half an hour. But um, basically, the chief whip, Bob Mellish, who is dean of the disciplinarian kind of whip, advises Wilson and Castle, we won't get this through the parliamentary party. If you bring in a vote on this legislation, it will not get past the Labour Party. Too many MPs now oppose it. And even some Labour MPs who had previously supported what Castle was doing, sometimes out of personal loyalty to her, were now saying, we no longer support this policy. So in that situation, therefore, some ministers and MPs who previously sort of said, we support in place of strife, we're now saying, actually, we have seen the antagonism it's caused to the trade unions, the, and the uproar on the back benches, we no longer support it, just drop it. And one of those, for example, was Paul Rose, who was uh, Barbara Castle's former parliamentary private secretary, PPS. And he said, basically, in um, a letter to Castle in April 69, the government just does not seem to understand the depth of feeling and resentment on the proposed legislation. Out of personal loyalty, I have refrained from voting against the white paper. But he said, I'm now, I will now vote against it rather than be treated as lobby fodder worthy only of intimidation. And Rose added, there's developed a deep malaise in the party, which is now in such disarray that it is visibly disintegrating. Only a compromise on this issue or a change of leadership will avoid leading to the destruction of the Labour movement. So even some of allies, Castle's own allies, therefore, turn against her on this issue. So what, what emerges, therefore, from these increasingly frantic meetings between Castle, Wilson, the TUC General Council, the Finance and General Purposes Committee, the late-night kind of sort of brandy sessions between Wilson and Feather at 10 Downing Street, is the so-called Solomon Binding Agreement, um, which, broadly speaking, said the trade unions themselves would take action against the calcinant unions and members who defied orders to return to work um, before ex existing dispute procedures had been completed. And Wilson wasn't convinced that actually that, that meant much, really. In fact, Solomon Binding, as it became known, Mr. Mr. Solomon Binding, which one commentator sort of said sounded like a character out of George Eliot Middlemarch novels, Mr. Solomon Binding, um, which is much derided, was basically a fig leaf, I think, as it were, kind of give Castle and Wilson a way of backing away from imposing legislation and suffering a humiliating defeat in the House of Commons. So in that situation, therefore, the union said, look, what you're trying to achieve, measures to reduce unofficial strikes, measures to reduce unconstitutional strikes, 
we can achieve those things, but leave it to us. Again, let voluntarism and internal union reform achieve these goals rather than government legislation. So in that situation, therefore, um, Carson, as it was, says, and Bush says, okay, with Solomon binding, we agree, therefore, to drop in place of strife, to abandon the short industrial relations bill, and let we we'll trust the unions to, as it were, um, bringing these proposals. And maybe in a year's time, we'll see how well things improved. We can always be legislation later on, maybe. That is our assumption. And so that situation, therefore, the, the thing was abandoned. There was, I think, in some respects, um, a kind of a kind of coda here, maybe, or somewhat sort of so it's a karma. Because, of course, we all know that in 1979, the so-called winter discontent arguably effectively brought down the Labour government. The wave of revulsion against the public sector strikes in January and February 69. Um, sorry, 79, um, I think it created a kind of backlash which Thatcher exploited to sort of say to voters in May 79, a Conservative government will tackle the trade unions once and for all. And many voters, including many trade union members, supported Thatcher on those issues. The reason I say that there was a kind of code and a kind of karma was that, of course, the Prime Minister at the time of the winter discontent was James Callaghan, who 10 years later, 10 years earlier rather, had been instrumental in opposing legislation to curb strikes. Ten years later, he was arguably brought down as Labour Prime Minister by the unions and those strikes. I better stop there, but thank you. Thank you.